According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians 4, looking at verses 8 and 9. I believe today we'll wrap up verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, I prefer to translate that, whatever is commendable, and uh, likewise, whatever is right, I prefer to render that as whatever is righteous. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, uh, dwell on these things, think on these things, reckon these things. And the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so we've got just a couple details to uh, to tie together some loose ends out of verse 9, and uh, that will wrap up verses 1 through 9 and get us ready for the uh, money paragraph of verses 10 and following, where Paul was rejoicing over the financial provision that had come from Philippi and uh, the blessings that had come as Epaphroditus had brought the offering that he brought, not for the money's sake, but for the sake of the spiritual benefit, the profit that happens uh, to the Philippians' account. Remember, it is more blessed to give than to receive, and this principle gets explained very well in uh, verses 10 through, or really down through 20 um, as we deal with that. And then uh, the benediction and the book is over. So we are really that close to uh, moving on out of Philippians. Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, ask our Father for His blessings on our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth. Thankful for your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that in his name, Father, we can stand before you and we can study to show ourselves approved. We are workmen needing not to be ashamed because of his work that he accomplished on our behalf. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness this morning, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, to open the eyes of our understanding. Bless our time, Father, as you feed us. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, and so dealing with the sixth and the seventh imperatives under main point six, which should be slide 31, there it is. Dealing with our sixth and seventh imperatives are really centering on thinking and actions. Thinking and actions. Verse eight is all about the thinking, what it is that we're going to let our minds dwell on, what it is that we're going to think on or consider or reckon, uh, all the dimensions there that we're looking at, and then the actions in verse 9, putting into practice the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And so there's dimensions of thought, there's dimensions of action, and they're all being spoken of here in these verses. As on Wednesday we were stressing the importance of application, practice these things, that putting doctrine into application is not merely not simply an academic application, but specifically it is a manifold imitation, a multidimensional imitation. All right, The idea of a manifold is multiple things all going on at once there. And learning, receiving, hearing, and seeing. Four different things that are going on with respect to that. The things you have learned, those are academics, and received, what's the difference there? 
between learning and receiving. Big difference in, in terms of not only learning it academically, but actually receiving with humility, receiving the word implanted that's able to save your soul, actually absorbing it and, and accepting it as personally yours. It's a big difference. Also, I think in terms of traditions, you can learn a doctrine, but you receive a tradition as the language is used in that way as well. So the things learned and the things received, and then the things heard and seen. And so in four different uh, terms that are used here to describe the, the multiplicity of ways that we receive information, the way that we observe it put into practice. And so this is uh, what I want to stress here under point B and the two subpoints with respect to this. Manifold imitation of the Apostle Paul. Not only did you learn it, but you heard it and you saw it. That becomes important as well, that the, what you see is consistent with what you hear. That he's not a hypocrite, he's not two-faced. He's not preaching one thing, but then you see something totally different on the other hand and say, well, wait a minute, how come you're saying that but doing this? <laughs> Why does that appear to be different? All right, it can't be different. The pastor has to be consistent in how he's living his life versus how he's teaching the Word. And so all the mental dwelling in the world is useless without application. How sad would verse 8 be if it was by itself, if it didn't have verse 9 to follow? The idea that, we're well, we're just learning, we're learning, we're thinking about it, we're thinking about it, and we never do anything with it. We never live it out, see. And so, yes, I love verse 8. It's a beautiful verse, and we are to reckon such things and to think on such things and to dwell on such things. Absolutely. Don't want to minimize that. But to have verse 8 without verse 9, I think, would, would be sad. To have uh, intake without expression. And so all the mental dwelling in the world is useless without application. And obviously James 1, 22 is, is really the go-to verse for a lot of folks to be, uh, hearers of the, uh, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And that, I think, says a lot. The idea of self-delusion whereby you think that just hearing the word of God is enough, that being in Bible class is sufficient, and, uh, and that uh, the application is not necessary. No, it's very necessary. What Jesus said in Matthew 7, talking about the uh, building your house upon the rock, that's the man who hears these words of mine and acts upon them. See, because simply hearing the message is only part of the equation. It's not the sufficient uh, cause to take you from being building on the, uh, the, the, the sand versus building on the rock. So that's Matthew 7, 24. Likewise, Matthew 28, 20 stresses application. Romans 2.17 stresses application. If you were not here on Wednesday, I would encourage you to get that material, to listen to that MP3 and review those verses because they hammer the point home again and again and again. That uh, intake without application is like faith without works. It's dead. So you say you have faith. Great. Glad you have it. Glad you, glad you say that you have it. Glad that you testify to having it. But I'm not seeing it. <laughs> and since I'm not seeing it, and you keep telling me that you have it, you know, I want to believe you. Love believes all things, but here, let me show you my faith in the application that's being made. And so the willingness to be on display, I think, is, uh, is a big application there as well. All right, so that's what we're dealing with in James 1, James 2, James, I forget what James 4 says, James 4, 17. See, I thought I could uh, do all these by memory. Oh yeah, the sin of omission, to 
to, uh, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. See, Doug knew what that was. He, he has a tune for that verse. All right? So it's the sin of omission. When you know the, the right thing to do and you do it not. And uh, so you choose not to make application. Don't think there's uh, any brownie points for going and grabbing an extra Bible class along the way. You should be uh, making application of, of uh, the Bible classes you've already had. So that's the application there. All right. Doctrines learned, this is subpoint two then, doctrines learned and traditions received, heard in Paul's teaching and seen in Paul's life. All of these dimensions, what does this stress? This stresses the dynamic of ministry with personal engagement between a shepherd and his flock. This is the dynamic when you're face to face under the authority of the word of God. This is the dynamic when you're face to face with a shepherd in that shepherding ministry. That you're, you're learning, you're receiving, you're hearing, you're seeing, and this dynamic can't be replicated mechanically. The, the tape recorder does not reprodu- uh, reproduce this, or the MP3s on the website. I'm glad we've got MP3s on the website. I'm glad they're sitting there. I'm glad 24-7 you can get them. I'm very glad that you can download an MP3 at 3 o'clock in the morning and not call me at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's great. It's great that we have those available. But that can't be a substitute for a local church. And that can't be a substitute. I know there are people that are podcasting regularly and they listen constantly. And, uh, and they don't have a church where they live. And uh, yeah, it just bugs me sometimes. And I want to say, well, why do you live there? Well, you know, it's a free country. You don't have to live there. All right. Uh, but if you are in a place where there is no face-to-face teaching, either bring a pastor in and start a church and get face-to-face teaching or relocate. If, uh, if in fact you're in a geographical location that is out of the will of God, if God has sent a famine upon that territory and uh, that territory is under God's judgment by not having teaching available, uh, why are you there? Why is Lot in Sodom? What's going on? And uh, there's, uh, you know, there's application to be made. I know it's, it's easy for me to say, pack up your bags and move, but um, seriously, if you are allotted to a shepherd's charge, then you need to be under that shepherd's ministry. And that's in a face-to-face dynamic whereby the shepherd knows who you are. Not, uh, not in an anonymous thing where you're, you're just a number or a name or you're... Um, if the shepherd doesn't know who you are, how does he shepherd? I think that becomes the application as well. And so we saw this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but in 1 Thessalonians 2, just notice the, the tender language that's used there in uh, language of a nursing mother, language of a loving father that's, uh, that's used there. 1 Thessalonians 2, he says in verse uh, 7, we prove to be a gent- uh, gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. That's a face-to-face dynamic. That's, a, that's the ministry of the Word of God, but it's a ministry of love. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. You know, how dear does the tape recorder become to you? Or how dear are you to the tape recorder? You know, does the tape recorder, uh, does it does it vex the tape recorder when you press the stop button or the eject button and you pop the tape out, say... Uh, as far as that goes. The tape recorder doesn't notice when your appetite has drifted and when you're uh, not uh, under teaching as often as you used to be. 
the tape recorder is not going to stop and pray harder for you in, uh, in those realms. So he says in verse 9, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And it goes on to talk about, you have the, the father language in verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And so this uh, dynamic of ministry with personal engagement is uh, stressed there. We also have Second Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 10. All right, now our final issue, our final point to deal with is really point seven, which could have been a subpoint C under six, I suppose. Uh, but really, it's the bottom line issue here with respect to the promise, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. When a flock is thinking and practicing these things according to biblical principles, they have the personal presence of God the Father. Walking in the midst of the lampstand, the personal presence of God the Father walking in the midst of this lampstand. When a flock is thinking and practicing these things. So this is a corporate application. This is an application for a group, a body of believers. The consequences to thinking Again, verse 9 of Philippians 4, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and as a consequence, as a result. Understand the connection there, that if if you're not fulfilling the first part of verse 9 as a congregation, do you have any expectation that the, uh, the God of peace will be with you? Why do you expect that the God of peace will be with you if you're not uh, obeying or living out the uh, expectations from the first part of the verse. And we do, we do this again and again and again. This chapter is good for this. We talked about this with respect to being anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known. Right? We discussed that those imperatives to be anxious for nothing and to give everything to God in prayer, that those uh, imperatives are prerequisites for the promise that uh, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, it was a cause and effect tandem in those verses from verse 6 to verse 7. The same exact concept is happening here within verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Because the Bible doesn't say, because, you know, practice these things, but even if you don't, that's okay. The God of peace will still be with you anyway. No, it doesn't say that. It says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. They are linked, they are connected. That it is a cause and effect, causal relationship here for this promise to be fulfilled. So the God of peace will be with you so far as you are practicing these things in this this way, in this dynamic. All right, so now this opens up a lot of questions. What does this mean to be with you? What does this mean to be uh, for, if God's omnipresent, what does it mean for him to be in a, in a particular place at a particular time? How does that work? With, with God being everywhere, when he is somewhere specifically, how does that work? And we, we answer this question in a number of different ways. I think it's useful each time we come to once again remind ourselves that uh, when he states that he is particularly present somewhere, then that gets our attention. That is a, a very special focus, all right, beyond his general 
uh, omnipresence, right? The Shekinah glory, for example, in the Holy of Holies, now, we're, what we're dealing with in the book of Hebrews, that <clears throat> the reason why it was a death sentence to go into that Holy of Holies was because that's where God's personal presence was located in that Shekinah glory beneath the, the wings of the, of the cherubim above the mercy seat, all right? That the personal presence of His glory was there in a very particular way. And to approach that was death, see? And so that's a very special, particular presence above and beyond omnipresence. And that becomes uh, clear. And that becomes clear in a lot of other applications as well. We talk about where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. And you say, well, big deal, you're everywhere, omnipresence, who cares, right? And so let's, let's recognize that there is the general presence everywhere, in, in the sense of omnipresence. You can't run from God, you can't hide from God, wherever you go. Even if you were to, to dig your way all the way to Sheol, God would be there by the time you got there, right? God's everywhere. And uh, that, that is true. But when he specifically states that he is a particular place, that's above and beyond. And that's a, that's a focus of God's attention. And that is something to be mindful of. It's a place of reverence. It's a, it's a recognition that, that uh, take off your shoes, we're on holy ground at this point, at this place of, uh, of God's personal presence. All right, then we also have to ask ourselves, if God is with you, is He in you individually or is He with you corporately? And there are passages that speak of both. This, for example, in Philippians 4, is a corporate passage, that, that the Father is with you corporately, that the Father is in your midst. And I think it's worth uh, uh, charting these out, rightly dividing the word of truth, and recognizing when God promises to be with us, is it Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Is it the Godhead in general? And is He He with us personally or corporately? And let's make sure that we're clear in every passage where this comes up, so that we're not confusing issues, and so that we can also not forsake certain blessings. See, in the in the sense of how about in the sense of personal indwelling, I've, I've encountered a lot of folks, and they understand that in the church we have the Holy Spirit. That by being saved, uh, the Holy Spirit indwells me in the church age, and so the Holy Spirit indwells me, and that's the that's the indwelling, and that's permanent. I can't lose that. I can lose my filling, but I can't lose my indwelling. So God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of me. And I I think that's great. That's marvelous. But then I also find a passage that says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. So besides the Holy Spirit, I've also got God the Son. I've got Jesus Christ who lives in me. And and so I want to recognize that as well. I want to recognize, now wait a minute, is that also universal? Is it unconditional? Is uh, Is it permanent? Or is there an occasion whereby like with filling of the Holy Spirit, is there a distinction to be found with Christ as well? Is there an indwelling of Christ and a filling of Christ? Is there one that's permanent? Is there one that I can lose when I'm carnal? See? And I think that's a, that's a, a fruitful study and worth putting it together. And if you don't keep it in your thinking, you're going to lose track. Now wait, what verse was that? The life that I now live, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What verse was that? And, and then you start to forget, wait a minute. Is that an indwelling verse or is that a filling verse? When, uh, when Jesus promises that the Father, I and the Father will come in and will dwell in you. All right, how does that work? 
And so all of these things become a blessing. Individually they become a blessing. I've got the Holy Spirit in me, I've got the Son in me, I've got the Father in me. Okay? This is a, this is a marvelous study. Then I go from the personal applications to the corporate applications. Our passage this morning is a corporate application. This is for the God of peace to be with the flock of the Philippians, Philippians 4 9. Because it's plural all throughout this. The things you, plural, y'all have learned. Okay? That's why it's good to be in Texas. Good to be anywhere in the American South where you have a y'all to work with. Okay? Y'all. The things y'all have learned. All of you. And received. All of you. And heard and seen. All of you. Practice these things. All of you. As a congregation. As a flock. That we are practicing these things. And God the Father, the God of peace, will be with you. The presence of God the Father in a very particular way, beyond omnipresence, that He is with us in a very particular way as the God of peace. Right? That's another good thing to talk about the fact that He's, he's, he's here as the God of peace. He's not here as Yahweh Sivayoth, the Lord God of hosts. <laughs> Usually when He shows up somewhere as Yahweh Sivayoth, that means there's combat that's about to happen. And he's, that's not a, you don't want to, <laughs> that's, that's a different kind of message. All right? But for the God of peace to be with us, that's marvelous. See? And so now we start to ask ourselves, now wait a minute, what is it like? What's that dynamic like in a local church? Because we know that Jesus is here. Don't I have verses that talk about Jesus being here? When we're assembled together in, in the name of Jesus, when we're assembled together, the Lord is with us. Where two or three are gathered in, in my name, there I am in your midst. So we know that God the Son is here. Can we now find verses with respect to the Holy Spirit being with our corporate worship while we're assembled together? Can we find verses for God the Father? That's, here's one. The God of peace, that's a reference to God the Father who is here with us in our midst as we're assembled together in a corporate application, see. And so ask yourself these things. And if, if it helps you to you know, draw a chart, make a grid you know, uh, so that you have personal indwelling on the one hand and corporate presence on the other. That would be useful. And then break it down in, in the Trinitarian applications. The verses that speak of Jesus being with us, the verses that speak of the Holy Spirit being with us, and the verses that speak of God the Father being with us. And uh, we can deal with it from there. Alright. So the God of peace. Of all the titles for God, the God of peace, it's used seven times in the New Testament. It's used more often than you might think. And it's used of the Father in, uh, in, I believe, in every case where it is used, that He is the God of peace. I'm not denying that Jesus and the Holy Spirit also are, you know, it is one Godhead. But specifically the title, God of peace, is reserved to the Father. That it is used in this way, which we shall see as we look at these verses. Let's start with Romans. Romans 15. What's the God of peace doing here in chapter 15 and in chapter 16? might remember as we taught the book of Romans that uh, there are some people that believe uh, that he finished the book with a benediction in chapter 15 and then added an additional chapter later in terms of chapter 16, both of course being uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit because there seems to be a benediction at the end of chapter 15 and then a second benediction at the end of chapter 16. 
So Romans 15, 33, <coughs> picking up a context in verse 30. He says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So I think we've got a Trinitarian view here with Jesus Christ and the Spirit being mentioned there in verse 30, and then uh, the will of God, your prayers to God for me, that would be the Father in verse 30, the will of God in verse 32, and then the God of peace in verse 33. Likewise, the benediction in chapter 16. Again, the God of peace with a promise. Not only may He be with you, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Remember, that's a prayer. That's a request. That means it's not automatic. It's not part of God's omnipresence. It's something particular. It's a particular presence. It's a, it's a wish prayer on Paul's behalf that the, the corporate body of believers in Rome would experience the personal presence of God the Father in their congregation, in their midst here as the God of peace. Not only would he be there with them, providing peace and so forth, but also involved in their combat. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's chapter 16 and verse 20. The God of peace, and back up here for this context, um, again, false teachers, conflict within the church. Verse 17 says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. So you're keeping an eye on them, and then when the time comes to turn away, you've got to turn away. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So you keep an eye on them, and sure enough, when they uh, are manifest to be the snakes that they are, you've got to deal with them. Absolutely, you've got to deal with them. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So it's important. I think it's important that the God of peace is with you. Uh, that uh, particularly if Satan's here, we want the God of peace here as well, dealing with these issues, the conflicts, the false teachers, the other struggles that we have in the local assembly. So that's the use there. Second Corinthians thirteen eleven. accidental that all of these usages are coming in the final chapters and the final verses and the conclusion to uh, to many of these epistles but it sure seems that way all right so um how much of this context do we need i think in a lot of these not only is he is he wrapping up his his epistles but he's also recognizing that uh that that you know we are monopresent <laughs> where we are is where we are and 
and, and everywhere else is where we're not. And uh, we would love to come back and we'd love to visit uh, on future occasions if the Lord opens that door. And uh, so he talks about in, uh, in verse 10, for this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Recognizing that when they were gone, they were gone for weeks at a time, for months at a time, for years at a time. The idea of travel and communication in, in, you know, in the ancient world, we, we struggle to, to understand that, uh, particularly in our generation, in, in just the last 20 years, the way uh, communication happens, the way that um, we were praying about it this morning, that, that I've got a little phone here in my pocket, and yesterday I spent a bit of time with a fellow pastor in, in uh, Africa. You know, in Cameroon, and he's showing me pictures of of uh, the the house and the the bricks that he's and they're reinforcing uh, part of his house there because of the the violence and the danger. Essentially, building a a shelter with uh, the war that's going on, and uh, and he's showing me these pictures on his phone to my phone. How amazing is that? In uh, in the the blessings we have of communi- communication and prayer and and all these things, missionaries today are. Uh, very, uh, very blessed in ways that missionaries even a, a generation ago would have never, never imagined. And so this idea of being absent and being present um, certainly was uh, was very urgent in, in the weeks and months that the apostle was going to be gone. Uh, who's going who's to protect the flock if the, if the apostle's not around? Well, there's this recognition that God and His grace is there no matter what, and uh, this desire. So in uh, verse 11 it says, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and, and here's not only the God of peace, but the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love and peace will be with you. Now let me ask again, in the, is this a consequence? Is this an, an unconditional promise no matter what? Because the imperatives are there to rejoice. Well, what if they don't? to be made complete. Well, what if they don't? What if they resist the Word of God? What if they resist the testing humility that completes them? What if they resist God's, uh, God's will for their congregation? Be comforted. Well, what if they don't? What if they don't receive the comfort that Second Corinthians is all about? Remember, the book started with comfort in chapter 1. And what if they just refuse to accept it? Be like-minded. Well, what if they don't? Live in peace. Well, what if they don't? All right? So we have all of these imperatives. Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. But that's okay. Even if you don't, the God of love and peace, He'll still be with you despite your rebellion, despite your schismatic nature. I mean, this is Corinth after all. <laughs> they, uh, they, they know how to divide up into camps and they know how to, to disapprove of three-fourths of, of their own flock. All right. So we read this verse as well, and we see a string of imperatives followed by a consequence. The consequence cannot cannot uh, happen without those strings of uh, those imperatives being fulfilled. Do you want the God of love and peace to be with you? Yeah, it's a great thing. So let's function on that basis. Let's function in obedience to His Word. Let's promote the kind of uh, like-mindedness, the kind of comfort, the kind of peace, the kind of rejoicing, the kind of joy in a congregation 
where this is the, the sort of venue that the God of peace would be at home in. That the God of peace would walk in and say, yes, I belong here. And he would then join in and participate in our comfort, in our like-mindedness, in our peace, in, uh, in these things. To have the Father here with us in this way. See? All right. I hope this makes sense that we can see this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And uh, the blessings there. All right, over to 1 Thessalonians 5. Again, the last chapter of the book. The um, really, there's a uh, roller coaster. I think it's 22 imperatives. I don't remember. There's a, there's a string of imperatives here um, that that they're to fulfill as a congregation. Uh, going all the way back up to verse 11, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you were doing. The fact that they were doing well uh, didn't keep him from giving more imperatives. <laughs> they were like the anti-Corinth. There's really no rebuke, uh, or only the hint of a rebuke anywhere in this book, and um, and he, he, that doesn't uh, keep him from saying excel still more and keep doing what you're doing, just do more of it. Um, build up one another, encourage one another, just as you were also doing. Appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction. Appreciate them, whoever they were. It wasn't Paul, Silvanus, or Timothy, they, they were forced to leave. And even though Timothy went back for a short time, he didn't stay very long because he rejoined Paul in Corinth. And so whoever these leaders are, we don't know their name. Maybe it was Aristarchus, could have been one of them. He was from Thessalonica. But whoever they were, uh, we specifically don't know their names, but he, they're instructed to appreciate these men, to not, uh, you know, not resent them or not uh, you know, kind of dismiss them and, and beg for Paul to come back. All right? Because whoever these men are, and if you think about it, they were saved at the same time everybody else was saved in that three-week little thing when, when Paul was briefly there for three weeks. So imagine an entire church where everyone's roughly the same spiritual age and born again you know, in, in the same time frame. And, uh, and one of them, two of them, they get identified as pastor-teacher gifts. They get identified as, as prophets maybe in the uh, early church. And they, get, uh, they get identified as leaders and you might imagine that uh, they might be despised at a certain point or dismissed as being, well, you know, you're no better than us and you're just as, you know, what do you think you're doing? So Paul tells them here to appreciate them and esteem them very highly in love, not because they deserve it, but because of their work, because their shepherding ministry is going to benefit that congregation. Then he says, live in peace with one another. That's between the, the spiritual leadership and the flock. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Again, this is the dynamic of a local church and how a flock serves one another and ministers to one another, the kind of thing that can't be replicated if you're just you know, remote listening to, to content in, uh, in a church that you consider yourself to be a member of, but they don't know who you are. See... See to it that no one repays evil for evil. 
always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. We start with our flock and then we branch out to everybody. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is God's will for y'all in Christ Jesus. Now we do this individually but really it's a corporate passage. It's a passage talking about our corporate worship, our corporate prayer, our corporate thanksgiving, our corporate rejoicing. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Don't feel like, well, I've learned everything I need to learn. I learned from Paul while he was here. I don't need any of this other new stuff. And I certainly don't need these, young, these youngsters and, uh, and, and what they're giving me. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So this whole context for this entire chapter, this whole segment of this chapter is dealing with the corporate function of the local church, dealing with the collective saints here in, in Thessalonica and how they function together in the body. Now may the God of peace himself, so here he's active in this flock, sanctify you entirely. Now this is a prayer. This is a wish prayer. It requires for the God of peace to be present here doing this, to be among them and, and what is the work that he does when he's there? May he sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, he will also bring it to pass. You think it's important that the God of peace be with you? It's critical. Absolutely critical, especially for our preservation, especially for Him accomplishing the work. Remember, God's the one that's at work in and through you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. If we're going to forsake the Father being in our midst and if we're going to try to fulfill us ourselves, wait a minute, how's that going to happen? <laughs> uh, I didn't call myself. How am I going to make this other stuff happen? Okay, Because He's the one that called me. Faithful is He who calls you, He will also bring it to pass. And so I hope these things get exciting. I hope we recognize that when we're assembled together that, uh, that not only is Jesus here in our midst, of course you expect that because He's the head of the church, He's the good, the great, and the chief shepherd, but also the Father is in our midst, the Father of peace, the God of peace, and uh, the blessings that He has to, to knit us together the way that He does, to preserve us complete. Because it's His faithfulness on display. All right. And he goes on to say, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And uh, the closing instructions there. So just like with all these other cases, we're seeing the conclusion to these epistles whereby uh, mention is being made here of the God of peace. All right? Seems to me like it's a pretty good recipe for uh, uh, a local church, all right, to maintain peace with one another uh, for these very reasons. Not to be schismatic, not to be political, not to be fighting one another and, and uh, the power plays that happen in, uh, in those kind of environments. Second Thessalonians 3.16. <clears throat> this was uh, the other of the two passages we were looking at that showed that, that dynamic between uh, Paul and his flock the, the face-to-face dynamic in, uh, in ministry. Spotlighting, of course, uh, folks that are not going to make application. In fact, uh, he says, if they don't work, neither let them eat. 
Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he would be put to shame. We're supposed to be looking out for one another. And who's defying the doctrine? Who's not living out what we're commanded to live out? See, and then how do we relate to them? It says, don't regard him as an enemy. He's still saved. He's still a brother. We're going to spend all eternity with him in heaven. But right here, right now, we can't fellowship with him because of his rebellion, because of his, his sin. He is not obeying the commandments from the Word of God. So don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And hopefully through the disassociations and through the, uh, the other applications of church discipline that we have available to us as a flock, that that's going to spark the repentance and get them back to where they're obeying the commands and walking the light and, and glorifying Christ as, as we all are striving to do. Then the, uh, the benediction of verse 16, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Sometimes it's going to be rough. It's not going to be easy to apply that discipline. It's not going to be easy to disassociate or to shun to use that language, to, uh, to express the disapproval the way that we do so as to spark the repentance on the part of the brother that needs to be repentant. Is that easy to do? Of course not. But if we stay faithful and do what we're, what we're commanded, we have this promise and we have this desire, this wish prayer. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. All right. And so we have the issue there. In Hebrews, here's the one non-Pauline use, although some people would say Paul was the author of Hebrews. I don't believe he was. So this is the one non-Pauline use. It shouldn't surprise us, though, because whoever the author was, Barnabas or Luke or any of the other leading candidates, he's clearly associated with Paul. He's uh, got a connection with Timothy, and uh, much of the thought is Pauline, even if the authorship is not. And so, um, again, in the conclusion of the letter, chapter 13 is the closing chapter, and uh, verse 20 uh, introduces the, the benediction here. The recognition that uh, he wants to be there soon, but may not be able to come. He wants to come. Uh, Timothy may also be coming in these, in these plans. Um, I like verse 7 of this chapter. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. This is exactly what Paul was saying in Philippians 4, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Here he's saying the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in whoever it was that was your leader in times past. Your leaders, plural, those who led you who spoke the word of God to you. Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Maybe even, by the way, included Theophilus, that uh, high priest that was mentioned in Luke and mentioned in Acts. In, uh, the name doesn't appear here, but he was one of this, uh, of this group. All right. Um, down to verse uh, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They've got the appreciation for the, la- for the previous leaders and now they have appreciation for the present leaders in verse 17. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
Again, this is what this has to in, in include that dynamic from a shepherd to a flock. This can't uh, be mechanically replicated. This can't be, um, you know, and I, I know folks and they listen to all kinds. They listen to, Rob, uh, to Robbie Dean, they listen to me, they listen to David Dunn, they listen to anybody that puts stuff on the website and they kind of collect, uh, you know, collect pastors and they pick and choose, kind of take it like a Golden Corral uh, kind of, uh, you know, buffet approach. But, you know, well, I like this, I like that, I like this. And then they're kind of picking and choosing what, they, what they're listening to. All right? And, well, wait a minute. First of all, who are you supporting and who are you submitting to and who is accountable for you? And of all these, you know, 10, 15 pastors that you have, who is the one that Jesus Christ holds accountable to shepherd your soul? Because I'm starting to get suspicious that nobody's shepherding your soul and that, uh, that you're out there uh, doing your thing. And so, uh, again, they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Standing before the judgment seat of Christ and giving an account for each of the sheep that has been allotted to their charge. This is something that spiritual leadership has to be prepared to do. And so it says, let them do this with joy and not with grief. (laughs) It's like, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way, all right? Uh, we could do this the joyful way or the grief, uh, grievous way. And, and it's kind of your choice, you know? How do you want it? Uh, with, uh, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Because I tell you, if they're a faithful shepherd, they'll do it either way. They'll do it even with the grief. They're not going to stop just because you're making it hard. But make it uh, Make it joyful. Make it joyful so when your shepherd's praying for you, he's praying with a joy and not with a grief. All right. Why? Because this would be unprofitable for you. You see that? You take the, the loss. You take the, not, not a financial loss, but a, a spiritual financial loss when it comes to uh, throwing away rewards in the judgment seat of Christ. You're actually, uh, this is one of the easiest ways to profit spiritually one of the easiest ways to, to lay up treasure in heaven and have a, have a, a profitable Christian experience, a profitable flock experience, is to, uh, is to make your spiritual leadership uh, shepherd you with joy. Say, <laughs> such as a highly decorated fellowship hall on a 50th birthday, for example. Just saying, all right? going that extra mile and just really, um, <laughs> even, uh, even with amnesia, a day that I cannot forget in, uh, in different things there, all right? But if they shepherd you with grief, if they shepherd you with grief, you're losing out. You're the one that loses that's unprofitable. You know, and I think, I don't know, does, does that mean the shepherd gets double portion? Does he, <laughs> does he, does he get the, the treasure that you're throwing away? Don't know. It just says that would be unprofitable for you. It goes on to say, and pray for us. Pray for us, uh, the author and his team. For we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And there's uh, testing circumstances that leadership goes through that, uh, that really needs to be prayed for. 
And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Whoever this author was had previously been with them and uh, is presently not able to do so. All right. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. So you understand this is not Jesus in any of these passages. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the one that was raised from the dead. And who raised him from the dead? Well, it depends on what verse you're reading. <laughs> okay? Because I've got verses that say the Holy Spirit brought him up, and I've got verses that say the Father brought him up. More verses with respect to the Father. He didn't raise himself. The Father raised him from the dead. All right. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. And so understanding what the covenant function is and the agreement between the Father and the Son and understanding that when the Son went to the cross He was doing so uh, according to the will of the Father. Remember Jesus is the good shepherd? That's, uh, where's that? John 10? He's the, he's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. Where's that? That's right here. The great shepherd. Hebrews 13, 20. And he's the chief shepherd. Where's that? No. 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. The good shepherd is John 10. The great shepherd is Hebrews 13. The chief shepherd is, is uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. All right. So the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. What? What does He do? That's what He did. What's He do now? Equip you. Ah. So I think it's kind of important that He's here. It seems to be very important that He's here for the God of peace to be with you because look what He does. He equips you in every good thing to do His will. The God of peace does that equips you in every good thing to do His will. So if you're uh, running chicken and not willing to obey God and not willing to fulfill a ministry, or uh, if, if you're, if you're uh, you know, full of self-loathing or, or, or uh, fear, well, I'm not qualified. I'm, I, I couldn't do that. I could never do that. Well, wait a minute. You're telling God the Father, the, great, uh, the God of peace, that He cannot equip you to do His will. When you say you can't, you're saying he can't. And how, uh, how blasphemous is that? What can he not do? He brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. I think he can equip you to do your ministry. Every good thing to do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. If he's doing the work anyway, why are you saying that you can't do it? Because he's the one that does it working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. And when it comes right down to it, I think that fear of, well, I can't, I can't, I can't, is really, I don't want to. Moses and all his thing, well, I can't, I can't, I'm not a talker. Yeah, he is. He was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And for God that said he couldn't talk, he sure used a lot of words to tell God that he couldn't talk. So here's what the God of peace does in and through us. He equips you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Which is why I believe it's collective here. Not only is He equipping you individually, but He's equipping you 
collectively, equipping all y'all. This is, uh, again, a collective imperative for the, for the uh, believers, the Jewish believers that are being addressed in the book of Hebrews. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Because they're functioning in their priesthood. They're functioning with Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of their confession. And uh, that God's going to be at work in them like God was at work in Christ. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. (laughs) Isn't that great? 13 chapters, one of the longest books anywhere in the New Testament. It's, uh, in fact, go find the books that are longer than Hebrews. Okay? Like Luke and Acts. Find some books that are longer than Hebrews. And, uh, and ask yourself if the author would consider this a brief book. I don't think Paul would, uh, would consider this a brief book. I mean, he wrote Philemon. He wrote, he wrote uh, some, some pretty short books. In Titus and 2 Timothy, he wrote a lot of books shorter than this one. But the author of this one said this was a short, a brief exhortation. And take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom if he comes soon I will see you. Paul would have called Timothy his beloved son. Um, The author here calls him a brother. Greet all the leaders and the saints, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. So there's the conclusion to the book of Hebrews. All right, so here's what we're dealing with here related to uh, what's expected of us to put these things into practice. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things collectively as an assembly. If Austin Bible Church is doing what we're supposed to be doing, then the God of peace will be with Austin Bible Church. And uh, we trust that He is. All right. Well, this gets us to the point then where, if that's a blank slide, it is, then uh, we're ready for verse 10 and following. Uh, And we'll deal with this on Wednesday night. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, at last, you have revived your concern for me. And this helps us to date the book. And this also helps us to date the, um, or to pinpoint the circumstances Paul's dealing with that um, I think makes a Roman authorship insulting, but it makes an Ephesian uh, authorship. In other words, he, he wrote this from an, an Ephesian imprisonment, not the Roman imprisonment that uh, this time frame is, is hinted at here with the now at last you have revived your concern for me. And uh, we'll deal with that on Wednesday as well. He's going to talk about the money. He's thankful they sent him the money. Not that he needs the money. He's learned to be content. And if the money comes, he'll glorify Jesus Christ with it. If the money doesn't come, he'll glorify Jesus Christ uh, you know, even without it. It's not the money is the issue. The real prophet is their prophet by giving. And so he'll deal with that as well, how the profit that increases to their account is what, in fact, he's, uh, he's celebrating in, uh, in this application. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account, that Philippi will be much stronger in, uh, as a ministry in, uh, in these ways. All right. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for truth and the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved. And I pray we would learn these lessons, that we would learn the lessons of 1 through 9 as a congregation so that we would not be anxious for even one thing, 
but in everything to make these matters, uh, prayer matters before you. And then, Father, to, to mentally dwell on the things that are excellent and uh, worthy of praise. And, uh, and then to put into practice the things that have been taught and received and heard and seen. Father, that we can function as a, as a flock one to another, as a real lampstand, Father. And, uh, and, and so much more than simply um, an information uh, dissemination venue. Father, that we are a flock that ministers and serves one to another, and I uh, pray that we might always be so. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.